Go ahead and open up to Acts 15. We're continuing our verse-by-verse, line-by-line study through the book of Acts. And let me just start out with a, uh, a story from my past. Um, I won't go into too much detail. If you guys have heard my testimony before, you probably know some of this, but it kind of bears witness to the the principle we're going to look at today. So um, back when I was younger, still young, but um, when I was yeah, a little younger, <laughs> um, so not as young as Connor there, I, w- I wish, but back when I was uh, in my late teens, I was going to school at Southern Oregon um, University. Emily was going there too, yeah. So um, uh, I was, of all things, I was pre-med. Boy, boy, did I not know what I, the Lord had for me. But um, yeah, I was going to school there. And uh, at that point in my life, I was not a follower of Jesus. I was not saved. Um, I'd grown up in a home that was not atheist, but um, somewhat just kind of like, you know, just, well, yeah, God's good. And if you're a good person, you go to heaven type thing. And uh, we were, um, what's the term when you go on Christmas and Easter? <laughs> Keisters? <laughs> that that was the kind of uh, believers we were, uh, if you will. So I, I didn't know anything about the gospel. I didn't know anything about Jesus. And my life reflected that. I, I, my life was very carnal. Um, the Lord saved me out of a lot of stuff. I was living for my flesh and all about, um, you know, partying often. And so when I was that age, I had a lot of friends. We'd go out and we'd party together a lot. And some of those friends were Christians, or at least they said they were. I don't know what they were, if they, in their hearts or whatnot. But, um, you know, even some of those friends would invite me to go to church with them on Sunday. And, you know, I went a few times, but when it came down to it, um, they basically, their lives, their actions and such, the things, the way they talked, the way they acted, they were no different than me as an unbeliever. And as such, there was nothing very attractive about them um as a christian like there's nothing that in my mind said that they were any different than i was other than they just went to church on sunday and for me that was like well there's better things to do than go do that i'd rather go to the lake or whatever you know and so um you know basically it, it was their actions that in a sense compromised their ability to witness to me or their testimony for jesus and the sad thing was that the, the effects of that um, negative view or whatnot, or, or like their, their compromised testimony, actually lasted a lot of years later, even after I was saved. Because when we first moved up here, I got saved in a Baptist church at Oregon State University um, and through a, a college ministry for young adults there. And uh, pretty drastically changed my life. But as such, it was a Baptist church I got saved in, so... Um, kind of always started out whenever we moved somewhere looking at Baptist churches because that's just what I grew up in. Uh, not married to that, went to like different denom- non-denominational churches as, as we kind of moved from place to place. But when we came up here, um, we were prayerfully seeking where the Lord would have us go and trying different churches. And we got invited to this church several times. But me knowing that this was a Calvary Chapel church or affiliated with Calvary Chapel, which was that church that my friends went to down there in Southern Oregon. Um, and I associated it automatically with like, well, I, I don't want to be that type of Christian. I don't want to be the one that just kind of, 
you know, I, I, I'm about following Jesus. I'm not about just going to church on Sunday and then living a completely different life. You know, I want to follow him. And that's what I associated, you know, this, the, this church with, even though I was totally wrong. I was off base and praise the Lord. Eventually he showed me that in that we came out here and tried it and like halfway through the service, I looked at my wife and I was like, this is where the Lord wants us. We're, we're going to be here. And, and we grew like we'd never grown before under the teaching of God's word. And so, but all that to say is the reason I'm sharing that is that the things we do and the things we say in our lives may not be what save us. They aren't what save us as we were focusing on last week, but they most certainly can affect your witness to other people. Or your effectiveness in being able to demonstrate Jesus and tell them about Jesus. And in today's text, we're going to see this principle reiterated as we see a similar situation with the church in Antioch where the leadership in the church reiterates what we saw Peter share last week in that, hey guys, you're saved by God's grace through faith and faith alone. But here is some practical Christian living advice. These are things that you don't have to do to be saved, but things that you should do because here's what's going to happen. They're going to allow you to witness to people effectively for Jesus. And guess what? You're going to be blessed if you're able to do that. All right. So just to give you a recap, last week we started Acts 15. We saw these Jewish believers come down from Judea, go to Antioch to question the salvation of these Gentiles that Paul and Barnabas had come back from their mission trip and they're sharing about all these Gentiles who got saved through faith in Jesus and faith in Jesus alone. And these Jewish believers are saying, that's great and all, but you can't be saved just through faith. You have to still be circumcised. You still have to live according to the law. And Paul and Barnabas dispute what was basically a heretical theology. And ultimately the church says, you guys need to go to the leadership, the apostles in Jerusalem, and you need to hash this out and, and come back and give us a report because this is an important doctrinal matter. We got to know, like, how is one truly saved? And once they get there, they do this. And Peter, he comes to their defense and reminding the believers that, hey, God's already shown us this, this that the Gentiles are saved just as we have to be saved through faith. And faith alone is Jesus. It's not by anything we can do in our own power And that's where we're going to pick it up in Acts 15 today in verse 12. So let me pray one more time and we'll pick up where we left off. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, again, we just asked for a blessing on your word. Lord, these aren't just words in a book. They were breathed by you. They were inspired by you on the people that wrote them. And they've been preserved through all history for people to read And have their lives changed. To have the deceptions of the enemy revealed to us. So we can live in truth. Your truth. Your your word is truth. Your, Your word says that we're sanctified. We're made clean. We're made pure. We're made uh, well and holy through your word. So we want that process to happen in our lives. We want to. We want things to be well with us. We want to experience blessedness or happiness. We want to experience peace. All these things that come through you in your word, your word tells us how to experience those things. We don't want to miss out on any of that because we see this world, it's increasingly becoming difficult to have those things in anything in this world. 
And it's narrowing it down every day to where they truly, as you've told us, can only be found in you. So, Lord, open again, just prepare our hearts. We want to be that good soil where the seeds of your word go fall on it and the, the roots go deep. And they grow and produce fruit in our lives and other people's lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 12, and it says, And all the assembly, after, after Peter says this, all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the, what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So after Peter gives this, Found a sound like theological argument. Like basically, if you guys remember, what he said was, okay, guys, which one of you has been able to follow the law your entire life? Now look at our whole entire history. Has anyone been able to follow the law? And like the answer is no, if anyone's being honest, right? If I asked you right now, are any one of you perfect and you've never done anything wrong? And if you sit there and tell me you did, you're lying. And you know you're lying. Not one of us is perfect. And so it's just a common sense thing. He's saying, well, if... If none of us is able to live according to the law, then that can't be the way that we're saved. All right? He's get, he gave them this sound theological argument. And then um, what happens after that is Paul and Barnabas go on to give testimony to back up what Peter is telling them, that you can only be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. Basically telling them that, hey, we saw this with our own eyes. We saw as we shared the good news of Jesus Christ with these people, they received the Holy Spirit, they, they believed, they prayed, and, 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 and they got saved, all right? And note that it says here that the assembly of believers, all the people that are gathered here listening to this debate, this, this, this conversation, they're silent and they listened. And I like that because it shows that they didn't arrogantly have their minds made up. It showed that they weren't people that were sitting there saying, no, 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 you can only be saved by the law and circumcision. I don't care what you say. That's the only way it's going to be. No, they're listening. They want to know the answer too. It's a good example for us. We always want to be teachable. It's definitely a red flag if we ever get to the point and go like, oh, I know everything. Like as a Christian, all right? <laughs> I don't shouldn't need to say that. I mean, it's, it's like if, you, if you're at that opinion right now, I'm going to tell you, it's like you are a work in progress. Every single one of us is a work in progress, a work that God has said uh, in Philippians 1 that he will complete, but you are a work in progress. And it seems like, you know, almost like I set myself up when I get to that point of like, oh, I'm doing pretty good right now. God has to do something, knock me upside the head. It's not as good as you think, though. All right. So these guys, these guys understood that they didn't know everything even though they thought they did, and they're teachable, and they're listening, and, and they're silent. And then the other thing this, this shows us is, which it's a good reminder for us practically in our lives, is that when you explain faith to people, and you've probably experienced this before in your own life, not everyone is going to believe what you know is truth, all right? As a follower of Jesus Christ, you know his word is truth. You know it's all true. But how many of you experience people not receiving it as truth, even though you've told them, right? We, we've all received that from time to time, Okay. But have you guys noticed that if you share testimony with them, basically you share the, the practical ways God has changed you or the things he's done in your life, the prayers he's answered or the amazing things he's done in other people's lives, that's a lot harder for people to argue, right? Because, I mean, basically they can't argue it. You're telling them this is what happened. I, I witnessed it. I'm a, it's my testimony. The only thing they can do is call you a liar, but they can't argue that. 
And here's the thing. What we hope for people to understand when we share our testimonies for them with our, with them is that our testimonies are actually the validation of God and his word in your life. Basically, they're the proof. So you can try, try to share the word with them, but if they don't receive that, you can share your testimony. And that's the validation that what God says in his word is actually real. It's like he's notarized your faith. And that's what your testimony is. It's the proof that it's real. Revelation 12, 10 through 11 tells us, Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last. Salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser, this being Satan, of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to earth. The one who accuses them before our God day and night. Do you guys know that Satan's up there accusing you day and night? April, you dropped the ball. <laughs> she never would drop the ball. She's very, very good. But that's what Satan says. Alicia, you're not living up to your faith today. You, you, your Alicia did this and she did this. Chris, he did this. He did that. That's what, that's what Satan's doing. But the very next sentence in that, verse 14 says, they, and they, that's all of us, everyone that's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. All right? He's defeated. The theological reason why he's defeated is because of the blood of the lamb, basically the cross. Because when he's up there accusing you of sin, he's not wrong. You do have sin in your life. But because of Jesus's blood, because he died on the cross for you, Jesus can stand there. Your inter, your, your mediator, the only mediator you need between you and God. He stands there and says, I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin. It's an endless cycle. Every single sin you've ever done, every single thing, sin you could ever do has been paid for in full. That is why Jesus said it is finished. And therefore, he's been defeated. Death has lost its sting. Amen? Yeah. Now, that's the theological reason why he's been defeated. But also by their testimony. Okay? There's two things he points out there. And the reason why he does that is because your testimony is the proof of the theology. Because the fact that you're not the same as you were before you were saved. The fact that God is working through you every single day of your life. And there's visible proof for you to see. There's visible proof for other people to see. That is the validation of a relationship with God that only could have happened through Jesus' sacrifice. That's why he's been defeated by the blood of the lamb and by the word of your testimony. Amen. So both the truth of God's word in your testimony or the validation of it are important in sharing the good news of Jesus with people. And I don't want to ever hear from anyone that my testimony is boring. It's not. You're a dead man walking. You were dead in your sin and you've been resurrected to eternal life. There's nothing boring about that. Okay? And on top of that, you shouldn't have to look too hard to see what you were before you believed in Jesus and see where you're at now and see where you're going. And it's amazing. And every single one of those little details that the enemy would want you to believe are insignificant. Those are the very things that when you tell people about those, God uses them 
like in a, in a way that only he could because it ministers to somebody in that special way and encourages them in their faith. But this is, we, we share the theology, we share the word of God, and then we validate it with our testimonies when we're sharing Jesus with people. And my encouragement to you is if you have someone in your life that it's just a struggle to share the truth of God's word with them. You feel like you're going around circles. You're not getting anywhere. Have you tried sharing your testimony? Have you tried just simply telling him, well, Jesus did this the other day. He answered this prayer. He did this in this my friend's life. Just share the testimony because that might be the very thing that God uses to get them to listen to the truth of his word that you've shared with them. Amen? So share both. Just like these guys do, okay? And... It says in verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied. James, this is the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter's Hebrew name, and it's significant. He's using that because this whole argument came about from Jewish believers. So he's kind of showing them that, hey, Simeon, Peter, he knows what he's talking about, all right? He's Jewish. He's lived under the law. He knows that he, you know, what it's like to try to do that. So he knows what he's talking about. So he says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Now, this is one of the sections of scripture where it does help to dig a little deeper and look at what the original written language means with some of these words. Because what he's telling him here is basically something that they had to unlearn, that they were taught incorrectly by the Jewish religious leaders. That Greek word used there for Gentiles is the word uh, ethne, which basically means nations. And it's how the Jews would refer to anyone that wasn't a Jew, because they saw themselves as really special, like God's chosen people. So anyone that wasn't a Jew was of the ethne, the rest of the people in the world, all right? And then that word used there for people was... Laos, which basically the Jews only used for themselves. They were the Laos of God, the people of God. So what he's telling them here is that God has reserved Gentiles, the etni or of the nations, a people from the Gentiles to be his Laos or his people, which to them would have been completely unheard of because they didn't think that any one of the Gentiles could be saved, that was reserved just for Jewish people. But what what James is going to go on to show is this wasn't a new teaching, or this wasn't something new he was reporting on. It was just something that had incorrectly been reported on through the years, something that we see every day now was a struggle back then, incorrect reporting, okay? All right, you guys didn't get that. I guess you guys don't watch CNN or, or... Fox News. Um, Anyways, so verse 15 says, and with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. Or basically what he's saying is God has verified exactly what Peter and Paul and Barnabas are telling us in his word already. And he goes on to quote Amos chapter nine, verses 11 and 12. He says in verse 16, and after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent or tabernacle of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. Now, there's 
some different ideas on what is exactly being meant there by the prophet or God speaking through him. But in the context of what he's teaching these people, the idea is that fallen tent, that fallen tent of David, David being a, a, a Jewish, the Jews descending from kind of he, him being a Jew. So like the idea of this fallen tent that needed to be rebuilt was the idea of these Jewish people that had rejected Jesus, all right? When he first came, he got rejected by them. But through the Jews that did believe, these people right here in Judea, in Jerusalem, the apostles, the Jewish believers, through these people, he was rebuilding like the, the tent, rebuilding the tabernacle, rebuilding that place of worship with God through the ones that did believe in Jesus Christ, all right? And he says in verse 17, through the rebuilt tabernacle through these jewish believers that believed in jesus christ that the remnant or the rest of mankind may seek the lord in all the gentiles who are called by my name says the lord who makes these things known from old so basically he's saying that through these jewish believers god wants to save gentiles this is what amos was talking about like 700 years ago over 700 years ago, this is not new news. This is what God said would happen. Through this, these Jewish believers that believed in Jesus, God would save, as they preached the good news, he would save Gentiles. And notice how he says, Gentiles who are called by my name. It's not that they were Gentiles that had to become Jews first. It was, no, he's going to save them as Gentiles through faith in his son, just like he's saving us through faith in his son. All right. And most importantly, the thing I want you to take from this is James is showing that this thing they're talking about, this work of God, God saving the Gentiles had a biblical foundation. All right. And the reason why that's important is because it gives us an example on how to judge if something is from the Lord. Okay. By looking to his word to see what it has to say about it. Okay. Always. That's the way to judge. Today we see many Christians, many churches, many pastors that simply if it doesn't like disagree with God's word, it might not be found anywhere in God's word, but it doesn't disagree with something specifically, so it must be true. Or they just believe because they don't know God's word that if it's blatantly false or it's not in God's word at all, but because they don't know that, they don't know God's word, they accept it as truth just because somebody's telling it to them, all right? Two major problems. But for James and these believers here that are having this debate, they ultimately decide, well, it's, it's great what Peter has said because that, that makes sense. It's great what Paul and Barnabas have seen. That makes sense. But ultimately, we're going to go back to God's word and let, let that settle the debate. And that's exactly what James did, Okay. Just as it should be with you and me in determining if something's from God or not. Which first requires that every single one of us know God's word for ourselves. You can't rely on me or anyone else. Because you've got to be able to discern the stuff that you're hearing. The stuff that you're listening to. The stuff that you're being told. The stuff going on in this world in front of you in your life. You've got to be able to discern that. And you have the Holy Spirit to help you do that. But he works through the word. And you got to know it for yourself so you can kind of do that. And if something's not found in his word, I'd hold it highly suspect in whether it's from the Lord or not. If it's blatantly against his word, it most definitely is not the Lord. 
And you'd be surprised how often sometimes they'll be, you know, talking to somebody and it's like, oh, I, I, I think the Lord's telling me to do this. No, he's not telling you to do that because this is what it says in the word. I can tell you that 100% of the time. There's a whole lot of things where it's like, well, let's pray. Let's see, because there's not something specific in that. But if it's against the word, it is not the Lord. Okay. And that's a reason why it's so important. And I can tell you, this council of people in the church did a wise thing. Because where the church has gone wrong throughout history, rest assured, it's because they went away from the word and they did what they thought was best. And that always leads to problems in anyone's life. Amen. Goes on in verse 19, it says, therefore, my judgment is this is James talking. So he must have had some sort of authority position, like maybe like the senior pastor in the church says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God or basically they're not under the law. We're not going to require that of them, just like we're not under the law anymore. And he goes on to say, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood for or because from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues or basically because there's Jews in every city. There's Jews to preach to. So with this decision that the Gentile believers were not under the law, James also gives them some practical guidance in Christian living. Or things to do for the Lord, like in the way they live their lives, and things that they shouldn't do, that would result in fruitfulness. That would basically help them in being an effective witness to Jesus for the Jewish people around them. Okay? But these are things that, to a a Gentile person, they wouldn't have thought twice about them. Because they were part of their culture. But to a Jewish person that was under the law, that had come out of the law, whether they weren't saved yet or they were newly saved, they could totally offend them and compromise their witness with them. Okay, And so those two things are abstaining from eating things that had been used in the worship of idols or strangled or had blood in them. All things that, again, weren't necessarily sinful in themselves and that any Gentiles would normally partake in and not even think twice about. But for a Jewish person under the law, they would consider all those things unclean. And it would totally just cause them to stumble. Like, I can't believe they're doing that. And then abstaining from sexual immorality. And now there definitely were forms of sexual immorality that would have been considered sinful for Gentiles and Jews alike. Like basically having sex outside of marriage. That would have been a a sin for both of them. But there were these additional requirements under the law for the Jews specifically found in Leviticus 18, like on who they could marry, like they, they couldn't marry people, maybe distant relatives or people that were like, you know, like through marriage, like step sisters, step things or whatnot, things that they still kind of taboo in our society. But in this culture or whatnot, the, the, the Gentiles weren't held to those standards. But under the law, these people were. And so they could cause them to stumble. And so there's, he's saying, don't do these things. Now, Whereas the Gentiles had the right or liberty to partake in some of these things, if, as long as they weren't sinful, like God didn't clearly call them out as sin in his word, they had the right to partake in these things. What James is telling him is that you should willingly set aside your right out of love for others in not doing these things so that you're able to effectively be able to share Jesus with them. That's what he's getting at, okay? You're not saved by these things. But these are things you shouldn't do because they could compromise your ability to witness to 
the Jews. Or maybe even cause your your newer Jewish um, Jewish brothers and sisters to stumble. All right. Now, this is a good example for us because hopefully this consideration of others is something that we strive for in our daily lives as well. Because often, in any given situation, you're either going to be a stepping stone to Jesus, helping people come to him, or you're going to be a stumbling stone. Where unnecessarily, something like the story I shared in the beginning compromises your ability to test, uh, to, to give your testimony or to share Jesus with them. Paul talks about this principle in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27. He says, even though I am a free man with no master, I have become a slave to all people to bring many to Jesus. When I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. Or basically like I'm not under the law, but I lived like they did just so that I could fit in. I could relate to them. So they'd listen to what I had to say. It goes on to say, when I was with those who follow the Jewish law, I too lived under the law, even though I'm not subject to the law. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who were under the law. When I'm with the Gentiles who do not follow the Jewish law, I too live apart from the law so I can bring them to Christ. But I do not ignore the law of God or God's word. I obey the law of Christ. So he's saying, I live like the Gentiles when I'm with them. I don't follow the Jewish law because I know it's not going to cause them to stumble. It's so long as I don't sin. I still don't sin. I do, I don't do the things God tells me not to do that are bad for me, but I live like they live. And he goes on to say, when I'm with those who are weak, I share their weakness. For I want to bring the weak to Christ. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone doing everything I can to save some. I do everything. Here's the purpose. I do everything to spread the good news and share in its blessings. Don't you realize That in a race, everyone runs, but only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself be disqualified. Now, we read that last part a lot and go like, yeah, I want to run the race. I want, I want, I want to, you know, like, like compete like an athlete would in my walk with the Lord. But we forget the context of that. What he's, the context of that passage, what he's referring to is considering others before yourself so you're able to effectively witness to them. And I like that was an athlete because, you know, how many of you guys have been, I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, how many of you guys work out in here? So like stay in shape, some form, all right? I'm not talking about running marathons. Some of you guys might do that, but you know, like there's, it's on this downhill slope for me. I mean, like it used to be running marathons and then doing Spartan races and now it's just stretching for like 60 minutes, okay? So, but it breaks the sweat. It's good. So all that to say is though, how often, do, do you always feel like working out? No. Right? Sometimes you have to will yourself to do it, but why do you do it? Because you know it's good for you, right? You know you'll feel good after. You'll need it, know it'll have good results. But I, so I like what he's comparing here because he's saying, just like an athlete, they don't always do it because they feel like it, but they knew it, do it because they know it'll lead to good things. And they gotta work hard to get those good things. So he's saying that that's like my Christian walk. I don't always do what I wanna do or what I feel like doing, but if I know it's gonna be beneficial in witnessing to others, I'm going to do it. 
That's my purpose in, in life is, is to save people. That's the mission God's given me. So everything kind of goes through this lens because I don't want to be disqualified. I don't want my witness compromised so that people won't hear the good news that I have to share with them. Every action he took was viewed through that lens. How can I effectively witness to people? Now, again, there's nothing in addition to the cross. He knew, Paul of all people knew, there's nothing I need to do to be saved. But he was constantly thinking, what should I be doing and what I shouldn't be doing so that God can use me to save others? And that should be the same thing that we're asking ourselves daily. I remember when I was first saved. When I was first saved, I had this, well, I came out of this lifestyle of being alcoholic. And the Lord drastically saved me out of that. But I still had this conviction. I'd go out and social drink with my friends. And my a lot of my friends were still in that partying lifestyle. They still abused alcohol. And I I knew that that was kind of like a crutch for me to cover over the, 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 the like the mask, the, the insecurities I had, the depression that I had. Like I saw it for what it was when I had Jesus and he saved me from it. And I didn't want, I didn't need it anymore, but it was kind of like the social thing. But I would get convicted all the time because I'm like, these guys still are in that place that God saved me out of. And I'm like, I felt like I was contributing to their delusion. And one day I just remember like, it was like plain as day. The Lord is saying, why are you doing it then? Just stop. You don't need it. Yeah, you can do it, but should you do it? And for me, it was that simple. And I continue to share that same conviction today. Part of it is because I'm a pastor now. And I know that like people hold me in this, like under this microscope, especially unbelievers. Not everyone does, but there's a lot that would say, oh, there's a pastor and he's drinking. Well, yeah, it's not a sin to drink. It's a sin to get drunk, but it's not a sin to drink. But they don't know that. They just think that. And so if that's going to cause them to look negatively on me and present a problem in me sharing Jesus with them because of that negative thought, I don't want that. I don't need that in my life then because I want to be able to share with him. I've had to deal with the same thing with the mask issue, right? I don't wear masks because I think they work. Some of you guys might think they are. That's fine. I'm not going to argue with that. That's you, 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 we've all are adults. We've done our research. We landed where we landed. Amen to that. All right. But for me, it was a conviction from the very beginning of like, if I go into this store and they, you know, like automatically see me as the, the rule breaker or maybe they really are fearful, you know, of, of COVID. They don't have the Lord. They don't have the security I have. And they think I'm contributing to their chance of getting sick. It's like it could leave them with this negative impression where Pastor Chris no longer can be able to share good news with them. And so for me, that was the overriding conviction where it's like, I'm not going to lose that. It's not worth it to me. Now, I know some people that were convicted at like, like at the lie that they felt all this was that that would compromise their testimony. And so that's your conviction that more power to you. But my conviction was that. And so I had to follow that. But we have those type of things every day in our lives that we should have those type of things every day in our lives. And actually, I just heard an example from my wife shared with me. Somebody shared with her. They were on an airplane and the, 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 the pilot came on the loudspeaker to remind everyone to wear their masks and, uh, when they weren't eating or drinking actively. And he said this condescending, like, comment where, like, don't be like the pastor I had on my plane last week who was eating sunflower seeds the whole entire time thinking he didn't have to wear his mask. But that's just my point. That's the world already wants to find an excuse for you as a Christian to why you're a hypocrite or whatever. 
And it's like, yeah, I'm not saying that's right to like kind of think that way, but it's like, I don't want to run the risk of that. Because now I, I, I have a, a, a compromised ability to share Jesus with a person, and that's the ways I'm here. Amen? Verse 22, and then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So the church leadership, they decide to send Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch to deliver this decision. And they send some other guys, probably Jewish believers, I would imagine, because that's kind of where this whole debate came from, to validate the message. Like, we're in support of these guys, and, and, and here's the decision we came to. And the letter read, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and uh, Cilicia. Now, I like that, how they refer to them both as brothers, right? There's no partiality here. Whether you're Jews, the brothers, or you're the Gentiles, you're all brothers. We're all one in Christ. And those specific churches they're writing to, they're addressing this letter to, are churches where they would have a high mix of Jewish and Gentile believers because that's where there could be tension with these things, with the law. So that's who they're addressing. And they say, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, basically getting you guys to question your salvation, although we gave them no instructions, we didn't tell them to do that, just so it's clear, It has seemed good to us having come to one accord. So this wasn't just James making the decision. The whole leadership came and they were in agreement to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, I like that. I like how they point out that it was the Holy Spirit leading them. All right. I think the unity was a sign of the Holy Spirit, that they were all of the same mind. They come in there kind of hot and heavy debating about these things, but they all land on the same conclusion. I was just thinking yesterday at our, we had a leadership meeting with deacon and elders, and I just was really appreciative of the unity we have in the Holy Spirit. Like we're talking about these things and we're just kind of like, you can just sense the Lord kind of guiding us in the structure. We're like, yeah, that's right. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what he does. There should be unity in this whole church because we all have the same Holy Spirit. It's not like, oh, Stephen's Holy Spirit's different than mine. No, it's God in you. And so whichever direction God wants, we should all be in line if we're submitting and surrendering listening, okay? So they had unity, okay? And um, I like how, you know, they, they basically tell them whatever they kind of reiterated, like, you know, you're not under the law. You know, you're saved by grace. We've, we've talked about this, but you should refrain from these things that could cause your Jewish brothers and sisters or people that aren't saved yet to stumble, that could compromise your witness for them, all right? And this will lead to being an effective witness for God. It'll lead to good things for you. I want you to know, actually, that in verse 29, what the whole reason for this, what do they say at the very end? You will do well, all right? You will be happy. You will be blessed if you do these things. They weren't saying, I'm not putting a yoke on you. I'm not trying to burden you by telling you this. I'm not saying you're saved or you're not saved by these things. But here's the thing. 
Your life will be fruitful if you do these things and you will be blessed. You will be happy. That's important. It says in verse 30, and when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of the encouragement. Now, I bet these guys are really anticipating this. Put, the, put yourself in their shoes. Here they are thinking they're saved. Somebody comes and says, you're not really saved. I bet they're wondering, am I saved? Or am I not saved? You know, they're probably really wondering this. And they come and it's like a just, I imagine like just like a gulp of cold water on like a hot day. I mean, they're just like, at the news, they're just rejoicing at the gospel. They're rejoicing at the good news. That's what the good news is. That's why it's called good news, right? It's good news. When you hear the law, that's not good news. When somebody tries to put that on you because you know right away, I can't do that. I'm messed up. There's no way I'm going to live up to that. But when somebody says, oh, no, no, no. Jesus knew that and did everything for you. Just receive his free gift. Believe in him. Acknowledge your need for him to save you. And you're saved. That's good news. And that's that's they're they're rejoicing at the fact of that. And it would also appear they're encouraged by the guidance given to them by the church leadership. Basically being told this is how practically you can live your life for Jesus and be effective in witnessing for him. And it'll lead to good things in your life. You know, it just reminds me, like, we want to be teachable people. We want to understand when, when our brothers and sisters are sharing things with you that they've practically learned in their lives. It's not to ruin your life. It's not to make it harder. It's not to put a yoke on it. It's to encourage you into that abundant life Jesus wants for you, to experience the blessings of the Lord in your life. And that's the way we should receive it. Oh, that's a good word. You know? I, I, I do want to, like, learn how to live that in my life. We should be going to people that have kind of gone through things that are older than us and, and, and kind of ask them to pour into us for the things that they've practically learned. Amen? And as older people, we should be wanting to pour into younger people, too. My pastor used to always tell me, his pastor used to tell him, you should always have a Timothy in your life, somebody that is younger than you, that you're encouraging in their faith. And you should always have a Paul. Have somebody that you like the way they follow Jesus and you want to learn and glean from that. Amen? All right. It says in verse 32, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. So Judas and Silas, they hang around in Antioch for a season of ministry. And I like their encouraging and strengthening. That, that's, that's our ministry. Any ministry we do for the Lord is always encouraging and strengthening. That should be the goal. That's what's happening here before they head home. And on a side note, some of you guys might catch this because in some of your Bibles, there's not a verse 34. And the reason for that, typically like when we see these instances in the Bible where there's a verse missing or whatnot in some translations, it's because uh, the earliest translations where they they actually take and they translate into these translations they they didn't agree on what that verse was or if it was there or not and so in the earliest manuscripts that were used to translate this verse 34 wasn't there verse 34 basically says but it seemed good to silas to remain there so it doesn't change the context of what's being taught it changes like the historical count a little bit and that silas stuck around a little longer so if you were wondering some of your bibles might have it in there verse 35 it says but paul and barnabas remained in antioch teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So Paul and Barnabas, they hang out there for a season. I want you to note there's two different things they do. They preach, 
speak forth God's word, the good news, gospel. And the, kind of the idea is, is with people to believe and get saved. And then what else do they do? They teach, right? They disciple. They teach them the word of God. They didn't just bug out and say, cool, you're saved. I'll put a checklist on my thing. And we'll chalk it up as a, as a win. No, they stick around and they disciple them. It's a good example for us. We preach the good news, and when people get saved, we disciple them. We teach them the word of God. Amen? So that's what they do. Now, that's it for today. But I want to go back to this, this principle that I kind of hit really hard there in considering others before ourselves. Because this is really a great word for us in the times we live in today. This world is very much, maybe you've noticed, about self-interest. It's about me. What do I want? What makes me comfortable? What's best for me? But that is opposite of what Jesus demonstrated for us in coming to die for us, right? That wasn't for his benefit. That was for ours. So in the very thing that has saved us, Jesus has given us the ultimate demonstration in that we are to be others-centered. It's not about self-interest. It's about others' interest, all right? Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31 through 33. He says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that encompasses everything in your life as a believer, in case you didn't get it. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then he goes on to tell you what's going to glorify God. Don't give offense to Jews or Gentiles or the church of God. Don't give offense to anyone. Don't give anyone a reason to unnecessarily think ill of you. And he goes on to say, I too try to please everyone in everything I do. I don't just do what is best for me. I do what is best for others. Here's the reason. So that many may be saved. You're not just doing it to be a people pleaser. You're doing it because the mission God has given you is to save people. That he wants to use you as his witness. He said you'd be his witness. That's why we're still here. There's work he's doing in us too. But that's ultimately the reason why we're still here. To take as many people as we can with us. Amen? And there are opportunities every day of your life. You guys are going to have opportunities today as you go out those doors with your kids, with your family, with the restaurant you're going to after this, you're going to have opportunities to either help people know Jesus or inadvertently push them away. I'm not saying any of you guys would do that on purpose, but that's the reality. By the things we do, by the things we say, how we react to things. And it should be a consideration in everything we do. Is this going to help me tell them about Jesus? Or is this going to impede me telling them about Jesus. And so we think before we speak. We think before we react. We think before we put that comment on social media. We think before we go to that protest or not. We think whether we're going to argue with that guy at the door about wearing a mask or not. These are things we need to think about as believers, okay? And this is especially true in the world we live in today because in this world, there is an increasing of things being uh, put on us that make us uncomfortable. And I've said this before, all that is is because what you're seeing is you're seeing the effects of sin spread. And what it is doing is tainting everything in, around you. Even the things that aren't bad in themselves. 
but the effects of sin go much farther. They taint everything, and that's what you're seeing. And so you're seeing things become uncomfortable. And we don't like that. We like what we're used to. We don't like our rights being taken away. We don't like to be made uncomfortable. And the instinct can be, well, I'm going to fight for that. I want what makes me happy. I want what I have entitled to. I want this. But as a Christian, what we have to ask ourselves, is that the right fight? Should I be fighting for that or not? What's my mission? Is it going to benefit me in telling people about Jesus? These are things we need to be asking ourselves, right? I like to think of this world as the Titanic. You guys are all familiar with that story, right? Here's the thing. When we're fighting to hold on to things in this world, you're fighting a losing battle. It's kind of like trying to hold on to things on that ship. Or it's like, you know, in the effort of saving them. Or like maybe trying to plug the hole. You ain't going to be successful. That ship's going down and everything in it is going down. But your mission, should you choose to accept it, it was never to save the ship. Jesus never told us to save the ship. He said, save as many people as you can. And he's the life raft. And the one big difference is, is there is an unlimited amount of a life raft. We can take as many people as we want. Because his desire is that none shall perish and also come to repentance. So as the worship team comes up here, I just want us to ask ourselves, where's our focus? I mean, this is something daily we have to ask ourselves, but where is our focus? I have to ask myself this all the time. Is it on me and what I want, what makes me comfortable? Because the Bible's all about talking about as a Christian, am I less supposed to be comfortable, right? Or am I other-centered? And I'm thinking, am I constantly thinking like Paul What is going to give me the greatest witness with somebody? What is going to give me the greatest opportunity to tell them about Jesus? And ultimately, what you're going to experience is when we're living in that right frame of mind, when we're others focused, when we're on the right mission, we're not trying to save the ship. We're trying to save the people on it. When we're like that, it's going to be well with us. Just like the leadership of the church said here, you're going to be blessed You're going to be happy because you're living in God's will for you. And that's where you're going to be most satisfied. Our flesh tries to trick us into other things, but that is where you're going to be most satisfied. And when I'm not living with that right motive, when I'm focused on myself and what I want, it usually leaves me in a place of unsatisfaction, discouragement, maybe anger. Lord had to teach me this lesson just recently. When I was on my family trip down to Orlando, getting to go to Disneyland and Universal Studios. I've told some of you guys this privately, but that's just another thing that it's not bad in itself, but you can see the the world and the effect it's had. It's been tainted by sin. I just remember going there and I remember like the 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 characters, the staff being so happy. That was like part of the magic of the place, right? They just made it such a great place. And my last experience with it was they're kind of a, a affected by the same thing. We, what we see in a lot of workplaces now, if you're a business owner, you're probably, you just, you, 
It's hard to find people that actually want to be there and do a good job. It's a difficult thing to find. And so the result of that is you have a bunch of unhappy people that don't want to be there. They don't want to serve you. They don't want to help you. First day we get to the park, you know, masks are required when you're, you're on the rides when you start getting in line. So we all have our masks on and, and my son has like a, a gator, one of those things you pull up, which was totally fine on the airplane and everything else. And the guy in line's just like, oh, that's not okay. Oh, well, we didn't know. You know, we thought you just have to wear a mask. Okay. Do you have one for him? No. Okay, so what are we supposed to do? Can we, can we get one like after we get out of the line? No, he's got to get out of the line. Well, where are we supposed to get one? That's your problem. I mean, that, that was like the, that was literally word for word, like the conversation. And, and we had many of them over the time. And what I found myself was angry. Do you realize I took out a small loan to come here? You don't treat me like that. <laughs> no, no, this is supposed to be the happiest place on earth. <laughs> you better be happy. <laughs> no, but seriously. Here it is just ruining my time. Even though like, you know, still for my two-year-old son, like seeing the characters, it's like the magical thing for him. Like he just, oh, he sees Scooby-Doo. He has a Scooby-Doo shirt on and he's just like, thinks it's so cool. He's having the time of his life. The boys are having the like time of their life on the thrill rides. And I'm like in and out of this, you know, like I'm having fun, you know, this family vacation, just spending time with my family, making memories, just being blessed, you know, on our time away, relaxing and stuff. And then, you know, letting this just bother me because I'm not being the way treated the way I want to be treated. It's about me. You should be serving me. And so there were these times where it was great, times where it wasn't great. And the Lord reminded, taught, was teaching me as I was going through this. It was a reminder for me, first and foremost. He's saying, see, it was never supposed to be about you, though. It's about them. They're not there for you. You're there for them. And if you look at it that right way, it won't affect you like that. It won't ruin your time. Instead of getting angry and upset, Maybe you would have seen the opportunity you had in saying, well, can I pray for you? What's the matter? It will be well with us. That's ultimately what the Lord wants. He wants it to be well with you. He saved you from the anger. He saved you from the disappointment. He saved you from the despair in this world. When we look at it from the right perspective, ship's going down. (laughs) I'm not trying to save it. I'm here to save as many people as I can. And they're not here for me. I'm here for them. That's the right way to look at it. Amen? Amen. And we need to remind ourselves every day because surely there's going to be a time for me to, to fall tomorrow and stumble at that same thing. But if I'm looking at it correctly, not only will it be well with me, not only will I be blessed and not be bothered by people not meeting my expectations or my needs, I'll see the opportunities God's given me to meet theirs, which is ultimately introducing them to Jesus because that's who they need. They will be the happiest person on earth if they have Jesus. Any happiness apart from him, it ain't going to last. Amen. So let's pray. In this last song, let's just respond. We'll have our prayer team around the room. Maybe there's something like that. The Lord, the Holy Spirit, even in just the words, his words, as he's ministering to you, he's like, yeah, see, you can struggle with the same thing. I'm trying to save you from it. 
And you just need to respond and kind of, in a sense, give that to him. Just say, yeah, Lord, I'm sorry. I see that now. And I'm letting this world rob me of the, this world rob me of the joy. I want to see people the right way. I want, to, I want to focus on my mission. And just do that with the Lord. And then as you go here, his Holy Spirit will allow, help you do that. If you need prayer for anything in particular, come up, let's pray with you. Let's bear that burden with you. Maybe you're struggling with that. Maybe it's a hard thing for you. These are things we, the Lord has to teach us. So maybe it's like, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. That is truth. I want to live in that, but I struggle with it so much. It's okay. We all do. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you much, so much for your word. I thank you for, in a sense, really simplifying our lives. We can really, it, it can be really complicated trying to change things, trying to correct wrongs, trying to make sure we're treated the way we, sh- we should be treated. All those things can just bring such agitation and frustration and really weigh us down, change our whole outlook and just ruin our, our day. And you've, in a sense, given us one direction to look in. You made it simple. You're like, don't worry about these things. You actually told us you're going to have tribulation. You're going to have these things in your life, but take heart, take courage. I've overcome the world. You're not a part of this world anymore. You're just passing through and you're here to be a witness to me, to bring as many people with you as you can. That's it. Lord, may we live in the simplicity of the mission you've given us in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.